Take a network break. Grab a virtual donut as we ramble through this week's tech news. We've got stories, of course, on Broadcom and VMware, a DuckDuckGo privacy issue, Dell financial results, and more. This episode of Network Break is sponsored by Datadog, the SaaS monitoring and security platform enabling full-stack observability for developers, IT operations, security, and business teams in the cloud age. You can learn more about Datadog by signing up for a two-week free trial at datadoghq.com slash networkbreak. You'll also receive a free t-shirt. That's datadoghq.com slash networkbreak. Stay tuned after the news. We have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Nokia. We're going to get more details on its digital sandbox and how Nokia helps enable a CICD framework for network engineers. All right, uh, just a note as we start, obviously Broadcom and VMware is the big story. And if you want to play a little drinking game every time we mention Broadcom and VMware and you take a shot, you might be drunk before we hit the first ad read. <laughs> These are fair chance, but it really is the biggest news this week. There wasn't any other product announcements. The financial news is pretty wide. There's a lot of financial news. So today we'll be focused on the financials of Broadcom taking over VMware, of course. It did start last week, uh, just after we recorded last week's show. Rumors started coming out and were published in Reuters and Bloomberg. And I was like, mm, you know, <laughs> these companies are always like whatever. And then uh, yesterday Broadcom made it official that they had actually paid $61 billion to purchase VMware, which is a rather large sum of money. It's a big sum of money, uh, $61 billion in cash and stock. And of course, there are potential roadblocks ahead of this deal, including an option for VMware to accept a competing offer and then, of course, possible regulatory hurdles. Yeah, so the Go Shop provision, which is what the financial industry calls it, says that VMware has 40 days to go and find another buyer. So let's talk about who the other buyers might be, Drew. I thought Intel might, but really Intel's thrown all of its spare cash at building fabs. I don't think Intel would find spending, you know, beating a $61 billion bid, which is a 50% premium to the to the share price at the time, would be a good use of their cash. They're going to focus, although Intel does want to increase its software portfolio, so it's not a, it's a contender. I think so, yes. Yep. And of course, yeah. Pat Gelsinger knows VMware inside and out. Uh, so, mm -hmm. And I think a lot of VMware folks would be happy to be back under uh, Mr. Gelsinger's wing. Yeah, I would think so. Whether he wants, maybe he knows where all of the, maybe there's a lot of skeletons in the closet and that's why he doesn't want it. Who knows? Who knows? Um, I did think Cisco might be interested in a bid. They've got $14 billion in net cash on the balance sheet. They've got $14 billion in free cash flow. So they could easily buy it within the, you know, they'd have to take on some debt and financing wouldn't be too difficult for Cisco in the current environment to raise that. It would be a significant acquisition and there's definitely synergies. Obviously, there's a massive overlap in the security components. Cisco's got its servers. Uh, VMware, of course, is the dominant enterprise. It would be a big fillip for the Cisco brand. Sure. But then again, Cisco doesn't have a habit of making significant acquisitions. There's also that pesky NSX issue, which, uh, you know, Cisco's already got ACI. And so there would be some, uh, I, I can think of different ways they could handle it, but that may also be uh, some sand in the gears <laughs> for that that purchase. I th well, I think that would be a feature because ACI hasn't been the winner that Cisco might have hoped. <laughs> <That's>, and, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> One of the angles I was thinking is that, yes, they yeah. could just be like, you know what, ACI and NSX, you fight it out and we win either way. That's right. Yeah. I suspect that NSX would replace ACI relatively quickly. Um, NSX is far is a far better platform play in, in that most customers it'd be far easier to fold the ACI functionality into NSX. You know, combine the hardware. Uh, of course, ACI is very much focused on selling 
the switches and the, and the routers associated with that, not so much on delivering customers' features they wanted. And that's why NSX has um, been more successful generally. That's a very broad statement. Yes, there are customers using ACI and NSX, but generally ACI has not been the winner that Cisco hoped for. So there is, I think, for everything, uh, Cisco's security strategy hasn't been great. Its security business isn't growing. It's going slightly backwards, if anything, um, in the face of companies like Fortinet and Palo Alto, who are getting you know anywhere from thirty to seventy percent growth, mm-hmm. um, and Cisco's going nowhere, sort of a signal that Cisco's struggling a little bit in that space. Um, so maybe you know there are you could make a story there that Cisco could could pitch in, um, but I think the one most likely would be Nvidia. True, I think Nvidia is probably you know they previously expressed a will to spend you know what was it, forty billion to buy ARM, and that was rejected. Uh, potentially they might be the main player. Uh, but I think the whole, on the whole, either any of those companies stepping up is unlikely. I think so too. I, and I think the big question everyone's been grappling with is, one, why Broadcom would want VMware, and two, is this good for VMware and its customers? Uh, I, I, I don't. My, my initial reaction is it's probably not good for customers, and the reaction I've seen across the the public social medias is that it's probably bad for customers across the board, but good for VMware shareholders. And it really doesn't matter what customers think or employees think. It's what, <laughs> you know, when this sort of thing happens, it's all about the shareholders Yes, and you don't matter. Um, some people did sort of point out that VMware has been promoting itself as a culture first organization and blah, blah, blah. But uh, those companies don't last very long in the modern era. And as we can see here, Broadcom will probably in its uh, buyout announcement it was very clear um, about what it plans to do. VMware today has $12.8 billion in revenue with $5 billion in sales, marketing, and admin costs, and $3 billion in R&D. So that means that in financial terms, that's about a $4.7 billion EBITDA, or earnings before interest tax deductions, and to get to $8.5 billion. Now, this is important because Broadcom says that by acquiring VMware, it will drive its profitability up to 8.5. It will take it to an 8.5 billion EBITDA, and that means that they're going to cut 4 to 4.5 billion out of sales and marketing and R&D. So what does that say to you, Drew? Yeah, that says to me that similar to the CA acquisition and the Symantec acquisition that Broadcom made is that Broadcom sees VMware as a stable revenue-generating company, not a company that they're positioning to continue to grow. Yeah, and we've called that before rent extraction. You take yes, the company. Yes, rent extraction, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You shut down the R&D, you stop developing new products, you go into a maintenance mode on the products that are in the market. Products that are in flight, you may or may not. Um, so some of the discussion sort of centers around which parts of VMware will survive. I would say that the end user compute, you know, that thin client stuff, the AirWatch and the, mm-hmm. the IP over thing, I think that's up on the block. That hasn't been a success. Um, company, there's plenty of room for Citrix to take over customers in that space for those people who want it, but it's not like thin client computing has been a huge success for VMware. Um, plenty of other business units inside of VMware could probably be end of life without affecting too many customers and, and not really affecting profits, but driving down the costs. Um, and then the obvious thing is by the time you take out the sales force, cut them in half, shut the marketing down because there's nothing new to sell. You know, and it's not like the market. It's not like there's an alternative to VMware. Like, it's a captive audience. Enterprises aren't suddenly going to go like, oh, well, now we have to throw out VMware because who are you going to buy? <laughs> Here comes Hyper V. Right. This is our time. This is our time. Yeah, Hyper V. My <laughs> and Microsoft doesn't care about Hyper V. They put you on Azure, right? Right. And I mean, speaking of the public cloud, it is sort of a signal that the public cloud has won. 
in the sense that if you were going to build a public cloud-like infrastructure on-premise, VMware was going to be the company that could give you a cloud. A and private yet, cloud, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a private cloud. And yet it has more or less failed to do so. Customers are not talking about, you know, complete orchestration. The number of customers using NSX and vSAN and ESX and the vCloud type tools, you know, that software-defined data center is very small. And they're finding it incredibly difficult to do so. VMware really hasn't managed to um, get customers to adopt that. They haven't produced such a compelling product that customers are massively into building on-prem private clouds. And even though the public cloud is more expensive and, and a lot of problems, that's where customers are going. So that's telling, I think. I think so. And we've seen VMware make a play to be relevant to cloud-native application development via the Tanzu platform, which is you know, sort of hybrid between uh, the VMware management system and running Kubernetes mm -hmm. underneath to do that orchestration. I haven't hasn't seen it really gain traction yet, but then again, you know, Kubernetes is still mm. essentially a new flavor for cloud. That's folks, enterprises in particular, are still digesting how to develop cloud natively. So I think VMware had potential, uh, and of all the you know sort of traditional on-prem enterprise companies, they were maybe the best suited to make a play in public cloud. But uh, especially now with Broadcom coming along and. I think essentially wanting them for rent extraction, I, I don't see a lot of hope for Tanzu in the future. No, I, and I think containers is, you know, is, is built on the assumption that you're going to do your own in-house development and the SaaS is the competitor there. Right. Now, that's not to say that there aren't companies doing in-house development and they may choose to run Tanzu as a container platform and, you know, use the vCloud infrastructure calls. But again, it's much more of a, you know, to make those API calls, you also need to be API enabling. So you have to have a software defined data. You have to have the whole stack up. Mm -hmm. if you're not. And mm -hmm. whereas a lot of customers just have ESX, you know, or maybe a hyper-converged, you know, platform, but they don't necessarily have the whole SDDC suite with NSX and the security features implemented and, you know, all that sort of stuff. That's a transition they have to go through if they want to get in that path. So. Right. I, I think VMware has been, I think, more successful than I anticipated in in its public cloud approach so far, which is essentially VMware and AWS, VMware and Azure, VMware and Google, which is just do, do replicate your VMware environment, but it's on somebody else's servers. And that's, I think, done fairly well for them. But that is not, mm. you know, for, for new net new cloud native applications, that doesn't get you anywhere either. Yeah, I'd, um, I wonder if Broadcom will continue with, you know, VMware's, VM cloud on other people's clouds. I assume that they would because that's also mm. part of a cash cow. That that generates a lot of, that could has the potential to generate a lot of revenue. I don't anticipate that they would want to kill that if, if that's mm. my assumption, yeah. So the other thing people are speculating on is price increases. They're almost guaranteed. Um my metric for that would be that, you know, Broadcom wants to generate more prices. Most likely you won't be able to get perpetual licensing from VMware in the near future. Um, it will become subscription and then hidden inside the subscription licensing will be a substantial increase in pricing, much like what we saw from Cisco and so forth in that saying when they transitioned to subscription, there was an underlying sort of 20 to 30% price increase. Um, and at the end of the day, customers don't really have an alternative, right? They're locked mm -hmm. in there. So what are they going to do? Say no, switch to OpenStack. Right. And <laughs> VMware has never been a company for those who are price sensitive. So customers who are already in are going to just pay up. Mm. Yeah. So I think, you know, subscription to certain prices will certainly go up as Broadcom drives to meet that goal. Now that profit margin is 
absolutely, you know, should Broadcom complete the deal. The deal is expected to complete in 2023. That is between November 2022 and October 2023, which is the Broadcom. There certainly are regulatory concerns. It is certainly possible that the US government may want to reject this offer because Broadcom, while it is nominally domiciled in the US, mm-hmm. remember during the Qualcomm acquisition in 2018, yes. uh, in the end, President Trump uh, issued a presidential decree to block the takeover, which was regarded as somewhat controversial, not normally the bellywick of the president presidential mm-hmm. office. Mm-hmm. Um, so expecting the current president, you know, expecting President Biden or the current administration to do that um, seems unlikely. Uh, so that probably leaves it to the regulatory bodies in their own right. But Broadcom is primarily a Singaporean company and has very strong links to China and the, and the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, most of its developers are there. Most of its sales are there. A significant portion of its ownership is there. Um, it is possible that the the geopolitical situation between China and the US might scuttle this. So that would be interesting if that happens. I think any regulatory issue would be geopolitical related as opposed to, you know, anti-competitive related because, you know, Broadcom is is not a yeah. factor in the enterprise data center other than the fact that, yes, they'll sell you switches, but that's sort of, that, that's not the same thing as, you know, yeah. Uh, so yeah, somebody else buying VMware, yeah. Yeah, although Broadcom's a dominant supplier in the Ethernet market, both with ASICs and NIC chipsets. Mm-hmm. Um, it will be interesting to see what they do with smart NICs because they don't really have a DPU strategy. Right, right. They did have one for a while, and then they um, shut it down a couple of years ago. Um, and so now it would be interesting to see are they going to support NVIDIA's DPU or Intel's DPU when they are direct competitors or are they going to come out with their own? Because you would expect that in the same way that Broadcom's fiber channel business unit, which is, of course, the brocade. So if you do want to understand what um, Broadcom will do, remember what happened when they bought brocade. They really bought brocade for the fiber channel. Yep. And that business unit actually produced astonishing returns lately, <laughs> uh, so much so they actually called it out in the financial results. I they did. if you noticed that. I did, yes. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, you know, they, they're very good at buying these legacy business units that are stable cash flows that will run for decades. Mm-hmm. And Fiber Channel is an example of that. And of course, with Brocade, they took the entire Ethernet business unit and fundamentally gave it away to anybody who wanted it. <laughs> they sent the ruckus wireless off to somebody else. And, right. You know, the, the switches went to extreme and, you know, all that stuff. And, and um, really all those great products that, that were in, and in it, they were in the growth stage, they'd been invested in, the ASICs have been built, the software had been developed, and rather than investing in those to continue them to grow by bringing new products to market, uh, Broadcom just said, no, no, we just want to take the products that are making a profit and we're going to drive them to profitability. So there's no reason to believe that this takeover is no different. Agreed, yes. Yeah. So that's that's generally the belief. If you are working for VMware, um, the general advice I've seen, there's a number of links in the show notes from various people here, like a good half a dozen on different takes. Uh, you probably want to wait until the deal goes down. You can have a year off. Just relax. Don't need to push too hard. <laughs> <laughs> a staycation at your company, I guess. You have a, yeah, have a bit of a, a whirly day, as I heard somebody call it. Work holiday, you know, W-O-R-L-I uh-huh, sort of thing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, turn up and then wait to see. Apparently, Broadcom does give generous severance terms. And so you might want to hang around for that uh, so that you can get um, that under control. 
um, and then see what you get. Uh, if you are, apparently Broadcom's very straightforward in when it takes over companies, it just says, you I want, you I want, you I don't, you I don't, get out. And here's a, here's a golden handshake and uh, thanks very much for for all your work. Mm. Uh, have a nice day sort of thing. So it's it's fairly brutal, but it's fairly clear exactly what's happening. So, you know, and I also noticed that uh, any number of companies are out there looking to recruit you if you're planning on leaving. Notice that so, too. Yes. the Yes. Uh, folks are circling with the offers. Hey, hit me up if you're at VMware. would love to talk. Yeah. Like LinkedIn messages and, and tweets and yep. yeah. There'll be, uh, I, I don't think you'll have too many shortages of, of places to go. Uh, generally, people who work for VMware have a pretty good reputation amongst uh, sort of things. So, and, and I want to yeah. be clear, this isn't the end of VMware. I think VMware is going to continue to be a strong, profitable company in the enterprise space for many years to come. It's just that I mm. think uh, Broadcom is not interested in competing in public cloud with VMware, which is where VMware was headed. Yeah, as I said, I believe, uh, you know, at this point, I think that public cloud has fundamentally won the future of uh, the enterprise, and they're going to be moving to the public cloud in various forms, whether they move their existing stuff directly native to cloud apps or whether they do VMware on someone else's cloud mm -hmm. or whether they just move to SaaS. So, for example, moving your email to Azure, you know, to Office right. 365 is, yeah. you know, public cloud. Yep. Uh, but it doesn't mean that you're running public cloud infrastructure. It just means you're consuming more and more SaaS. We're seeing SAP offer its products and as sat, you know, as a service, mm -hmm. Salesforce, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I think it's, you know, the game is over in the long term. That doesn't mean it's today. VMware is effectively a mainframe. Um, like for example, Computer Associates, which is a company Broadcom bought about eight to nine years ago, right. has been a massive cash cow for Broadcom. Yes. They pulled billions out of that business. But as they said, and you know, when you reach into it, the computer associates business only has about 500 customers and the revenue is absolutely profitable, but it doesn't grow. Right. So a small number of customers, very large amount of money from mainframes, but not exactly, you know, the business that uh, is going to take off. And Broadcom's very happy with that, you yep. know. That's uh, Broadcom will rename its software business unit, the entirety. So now VMware will become a mainframe company because the VMware brand will be, <laughs> will get uh, semantic, which does lead to a discussion of the overlap. I don't know if you've thought about that, but, you know, Symantec is, of course, an enterprise security company uh, as part of the Broadcom sort portfolio. Right. Um, and it'd be interesting to see how VMware's brand, uh, you know, associates with Symantec. Are we going to see VMware Symantec? Hmm. Interesting. interesting. Yes. I'm also yeah. curious what uh, Broadcom is going to do with the SD-WAN business. Yeah. This, you know, is that core or is that just a piece that could be sold off? Right. Could be a spin out. Could be a spin out. So many you things. Know, sell it to somebody. Yeah. So many pieces that could be just split off and, you know, ditched, um, stay with because it's uh, the SD-WAN was supposed to be welded into the NSX, really. Right. And also part of an IoT strategy, perhaps. Right. Certainly there was an edge play there as well. So, yeah. Mm. Uh, I think everybody inside Broadcom and VMware has some thinking to do about the different BUs. Mm. Be interesting to see what they do. Yep. All right, well, let's leave that there. There's plenty of links in the show notes if you want to go read what other people are thinking. We'll move on. But we are going to stay with VMware. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, has issued an alert that malicious actors are actively exploiting a series of VMware vulnerabilities in several products to allow remote code execution and privilege escalation to root. And according to this bulletin, threat actors developed the exploit by reverse engineering patches that VMware had released to address the vulnerabilities. Uh, CISA says the exploit came to light within 48 hours after the patches were released. 
Yeah, this is uh, pretty dire for VMware. Um, they've been really caught out here. It goes across quite a large number of their products. It's just, yeah, like the, again, Workspace ONE, Thin Client, VMware Cloud Foundation in the vReali suite, and it's pretty grim. Uh, the response from various analysts is basically saying you should just go around and turn off all your VMware immediately or you're going to get taken out. I don't know if it's that bad, but that's the way people are talking. Yeah, well, VMware did release patches for these vulnerabilities back in April. Um, and if that's been on your list to get to and you haven't gotten to them yet, you might want to consider making it a priority since it, the government, the US government is saying active exploits are out and working. Yeah, and the product suite here is quite wide. Right, and so it's a lot, across a lot of products, yeah. Yeah, but not ESX. It's, you know, all of uh, yes. VMware's more modern products, shall we say. Workspace ONE, VIDM, VMware Cloud Foundation, vRealize Suite Lifecycle Manager and things like that. So yeah, vRealize Automation. Um, but they have to have local access or to get on some and they get network access on others. I think the big one here is VMware's Workspace ONE, which is the main core problem, but still not looking good. Get patching as yep. always. Links in the show notes if you need those. Uh, we'll move on. A researcher has discovered that DuckDuckGo, the DuckDuckGo web browser, which touts its privacy features and tracker blocking, does allow ads from Microsoft to collect your IP address and user agent string. If you click on those ads, DuckDuckGo's CEO said that's due to a search syndication agreement that the browser has with Microsoft. Yeah, this is really difficult. Um, you know, we talk a lot about using ad blockers here to try and keep control of the data. And mm -hmm. for me having ad blockers is just a performance issue because so much bandwidth is consumed by these ad platforms. Uh, and when you go to certain websites, if you have an ad, you know, it actually stops the web browser while it goes off and puts out a bid, you know, a, right. it's a machine to machine bidding process, but your web page is suspended until the ad comes back and then gets displayed to you after it goes through an auction process. Um, so I tend to block ads just on a performance basis because they're so slow to load much as, and as well as the visual clutter that just impinges on my brain. Right. Um, and then there's the privacy angle, which I'm also very big on. But the, it's amusing to me that um, the challenge here is that ads need tracking to justify their existence to customers. In other words, customers don't trust ad companies to display ads. They want to see data. They want to be able to target them to smaller audiences and things like that. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, customers believe that that data matters about knowing. That's one of the things that we struggle here at Packer Pushes is that customers do ask, you know, say, can we just target, you know, people in, you know, in European market who are in the top, you know, of the CIO category? Because the answer is, of course, we don't. We just don't do that. No. And part of the reason that. is it's just how much it costs to build a, a data <laughs> analysis platform. Uh, and uh, that is why advertising is so expensive. It's because the data analysis and data extraction on the targeting platforms are so high. Um, so it's a bit of a dire thing. And uh, so the cost of data analysis and gathering that data is extremely high. I just note as, an, as a piece of irony, um, I note that Apple's own, Apple has an ad platform. Did you mm -hmm. know Apple has an ad platform? I didn't actually, know. Yeah. So you can go to Apple and place ads on various um, properties that belong to Apple. Um, and it, but its own ad service won't actually advertise on certain Apple products because they're not allowed to permit, you know, not allowed to track users. Great. So advertising <laughs> on the, so even Apple's internal <laughs> ad division won't advertise on Apple's platform That's great. because it can't get the data, which yeah. is bonkers, right? Right. Bonkers. That's funny. So I feel sorry for DuckDuckGo. They're kind of caught between, you know, these ad tech companies who said our value is we can add value by making you pay more to give you data about where your ad went. But now, of course, 
the cost of that is is wrong and customers don't like being tracked. You know, it's that story of, you know, searching for towels on the internet and then every time you hit a website, you get ads for towels. For towels yeah. Yeah. So as you should note, the DuckDuckGo CEO says that the information Microsoft is collecting is not associated with a user profile that's going to follow you around. Um, but given the fact that DuckDuckGo positions itself as uh, an anti-tracking and privacy browser, uh, anytime that perception seems dinged by an agreement like this is bad for their uh, brand. Yeah, I agree. Yep. Uh, I, I mean, so I'm going to keep using DuckDuckGo because, frankly, I think it's better than the alternatives. But I, I also do think they are. It, I'm glad they're coming in for a bit of a kicking here. It's good to keep them honest on stuff like this. Mm-hmm. All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Datadog. Their unified platform with over 500-plus vendor-backed integrations lets you correlate metrics, traces, logs, and security signals across your applications, infrastructure, and third-party services in a single pane of glass. With network performance monitoring included in that unified platform, Datadog provides full visibility into every network component that makes up your on-prem, cloud, and hybrid environments with little to no overhead. By monitoring the performance of your connections among your hosts, services, virtual private clouds, and other elements, you can quickly determine when your network is the root cause of any issue. And as an exclusive offer for Network Break listeners, you can sign up for a free two-week Datadog trial at datadoghq.com slash networkbreak, and you'll also get a free Datadog t-shirt. That's datadoghq.com slash networkbreak. Happy monitoring. Uh, back to Broadcom for a second. The chipmaker announced financial results for its second quarter of 2022. The company had revenues of $8.1 billion for the quarter, up 23%, and net income of $2.6 billion. Just in case you didn't think that their financial position was strong, their financial position is strong. Yes. I think the key here for me was that they authorized a $10 billion buyback of shares. Mm-hmm. So they're not discovering dividends per se, although they are but the $10 billion buyback. So they're not even using all of their cash to buy VMware. Just think about that. That, I guess, is impressive, um, yes. <laughs> which is impressive. And it kind of emphasizes the fact that Broadcom is you know, tightly focused on financial engineering and acquisitions to get the path forward. So just in case you thought that we were joking about this, there's secondary evidence that points to how Broadcom does business. Yeah. And speaking about, you know, it's got the semiconductor division and now an infrastructure software division. Semiconductors brought in $6.2 billion in revenue for the quarter. Infrastructure software was $1.9 billion. Uh, and we anticipate that number going up if the VMware deal goes through. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, if the VMware deal goes through, 50% of the company's revenue will now be from software and 50% from hardware. Right. Uh, So it is actually a a structural change for Broadcom, which was always seen as a hardware company. And to grow in, say, an eight to 10-year period from being all hardware to 50% hardware, 50% software is a significant achievement. Yep. All right, moving on, Dell Technologies also announced financial results for its first quarter of fiscal 2023, and the company had a record quarter, revenues of $26.1 billion, up 16% year-over-year, and net income of just over $1 billion. Uh, this is how you do it. <laughs> I mean, what can I say? Dell wins everywhere. Uh, <laughs> one thing we didn't talk about in the VMware Broadcom is that uh, Dell owns 40% of VMware shares, and combined with Silver Lake Partners, who owns 10.2%, they represent more than half of the issued shares in VMware, and they are the substantial winners. Any deal that goes down in the space would have to convince those two parties to hand over their shares um, because they're the ones that matter. Everybody else is kind of an accessory. Um, and once I think once you get to a 75% acceptance ratio, then the others are a forced sale. So, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, But at the, in the background here, Dell has a great business. Now, what's unique here, of course, is that Dell seems to be completely unaffected by supply chain, Drew. 
It's amazing because revenues were driven by enterprise laptop and PC sales. That was $12 billion, uh, up 22% year over year. Also had consumer sales of PCs of $3.6 billion. Yeah, so where's the, the semiconductor or the, the component shortage for <laughs> Dell? I, I don't see it. Yeah, whereas HP, that is not HPE, that is HP, uh, had problems shipping laptops to its uh, customer base and its product backlog continued to grow, showing, stressing that the supply chain meant it couldn't ship the orders that it had and it's continuing to take back orders. By comparison, Dell's product backlog did not come down, um, so it's continuing to receive orders. So it indicates that it's a smooth transition in the sense that Dell is not got access to supply that nobody else has got, it's still got a backlog. It's still taking more orders right. and so on and so forth. There was one. So for example, with Cisco's financial results, we talked a little bit about last week. We'll talk more about this week. Cisco has a problem where its back orders are ballooning because they're not able to ship. And so so the shareholders aren't happy that Cisco can't control its supply chain. Uh, by comparison, Dell seems to be firing all over the place. They're very focused on their uh, cloud business. They do manufacture servers directly for a number of cloud companies, uh, usually to order. And my understanding is that their networking business unit has actually been very successful as well, especially in the cloud space where they provide open switches and then the companies come along and put their own operating systems on the top or choose an operating system that fits their needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a great quarter for Dell. Uh, they're also anticipating uh, that the next quarter will also be great, but I have to wonder how long this party can go on because I think the results are primarily driven by enterprises, you know, refreshing remote workers, laptops and PCs and so on. And eventually that's going to mm-hmm. run out. So we'll see what the future holds, but you know, for this quarter and the next quarter, Dell sees uh, sunny days. Yeah. Well, I mean, their share price went from $40 to over 50 to nearly $52 in the last two weeks. So while everybody else in the tech space is generally falling away, uh, Dell's really bucking the trend here. That's up significantly. That's a 20% jump in in the last week or so. Yeah, not bad. Uh, our last story for the day, and you tease us a little bit, is about Cisco. We had covered Cisco's financial results in a previous show, but they, uh, I, I noticed that the, some other stories came out saying that they're anticipating an actual revenue loss of 1% to 5% in their next uh, fiscal quarter, which would be the fourth quarter of 2022 for Cisco. According to the register, that's a loss of anywhere from $131 million to $720 million. Uh, CEO Chuck Robbins told analysts that the lockdown in Shanghai is the primary culprit, saying, quote, in Shanghai, there are a lot of components that go into our power supplies. We're not able to get those components. Well, it's not just power supplies. It's all through their supply chain. Um, they are redesigning up to 100 products in their portfolio to be able to go multi-supplier. And that will likely result in higher costs because as they redesign, um, they actually have the costs of the redesign. It takes future products off the table, so they go on the back burner while engineers are allocated to redesign. Um, And it also means you're not necessarily buying the cheapest component, you're just buying whatever components you can get. So there's multiple factors here. I think Cisco's biggest problem here is that they went into – uh, the market at the beginning of the supply chain saying we've you know we're rated by so and so there's a there's a company out there that rates supply chains uh-huh. and Cisco is rated like top five in the world or something and now suddenly we find that while Arista is able to ship supply and increase you know turnover and Dell's able to do the same Cisco can't so uh, the market feels that Cisco might what Cisco says and what Cisco does is a different thing. Um, and I just want to note also that Cisco did lose some business in Russia and Belarus as a result of the Ukraine, the unprovoked war in Ukraine. I think they said about 200 million that they've written that off. Yeah. But they're going to be down like 700 million in sales, which 
is a real big setback. They fought really hard to try and get growth and now they're going to be pushed backwards. Yeah. In, in his call with analysts, uh, Robbins emphasized to the financial analyst that overall demand is strong. Uh, he says, quote, we believe our revenue performance in the upcoming quarters is less dependent on, de- on demand and more dependent on the supply availability. So he's saying people still want to buy our stuff. We're just having trouble getting it to them. Yeah, I think that'll change. If they can't ship stuff to customers, customers will turn elsewhere. I don't think they're willing to wait. Um, there is plenty of supply in the white box space. Um, and, you know, there are customers who are willing to consider, well, you know, let's go and get some white box and put it in and while we wait for Cisco to fix themselves. Might be the where it starts. Um but there's also no reason to believe that the lockdowns in Shanghai are coming to an end. Uh, I've been checking on that and the total lockdown still applies and the Chinese government has, continues to follow a zero COVID strategy, even in the face of riots and various civil unrest around the factories. And there's actually significant suggestions that um, it's going to continue to go on indefinitely. Mm-hmm. So if you want to believe that Shanghai will suddenly start shipping components, that the factories will restart. There's actually no evidence of that happening at this point in time. Well, we'll have to see what Robbins has to say about that in the next analyst call. Well, he'll... <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's going to say, not my fault. It was it was Shanghai's fault because then and we couldn't do anything. Yes. <laughs> All right, uh, that does wrap up the news portion. Stay tuned for our Tech Bytes podcast with Nakia. We're going to get more details on Digital Sandbox and how it helps enable a CICD framework for network engineers. That's coming right up. Today, we welcome sponsor Nokia back to the Tech Byte podcast to get more information about its Digital Sandbox and how this software, which is part of Nokia's fabric services system, helps enable a continuous integration, continuous delivery, or CICD framework for network engineers. Our guest is Erwin James. He is product line manager at Nokia. And Erwin, welcome back. And can you just start us off with just a brief recap of uh, Digital Sandbox for folks who may not have heard our previous conversations? Sure. Thanks, Drew. Yeah, so the um, Digital Sandbox for us is a digital twin, which is made up of our SR Linux network operating system, which is containerized and running in a Kubernetes cluster. And it's a mechanism in which we're able to um, build an exact replica uh, replica of what's in your production network or a subset of what's in your production network uh, in a containerized environment. But one of the key differentiators there is that we're able to actually extract the state of the current network and replicate that state back into the digital twin. So this isn't just reading the configuration of the boxes and and sort of saying, I can reconfigure them. This is actually reading fibs, ribs, Mac tables, uh, memory, you know, all the data that makes up the device so that you can fully emulate the running state rather than the configured state. Yeah, exactly. And you can also expand that to, uh, we have the ability to actually extract operational states of ports, uh, states of BGP neighbors, for instance. So any aspect of the network operating system, which has a state, uh, we can actually inject that directly into the digital sandbox. So when I think of CICD, continuous integration, continuous deployment, that tends to to, meet, to my mind to be more on the uh, the dev side or the DevOps side. How does that relate to network engineers? What do you what do you mean by bringing CICD like framework to the network engineering space? Sure. There are a few things that fabric services systems bring to the table. One, you know, if we're trying to follow the, the DevOps model, a lot of the representation of application infrastructure or applications themselves uh, are done in a, a data model such as uh, YAML, right? So if we, you know, compare that to Kubernetes, that's kind of the, the, the preferred method, not the only, but the preferred. So uh, fabric services systems uh, has that capability of exposing its API and its interface to the operator in a similar model to what you'd expect from something like Kubernetes. The second piece of, of that is being able to do 
actual tests and validations before you push this into some sort of production network, right? And this is kind of where that digital sandbox comes to play. With the digital sandbox, we're actually able to provide a true digital representation of the network or a subset of the network, and we can mitigate race. So when we're doing actual CI, we can actually do changes, validates, tests, mitigate risk. And only once we've gone through those stages of uh, validating the changes against a digital twin, can we push this into something into production? It's probably worth pointing out that the fabric services system is an intent-based network management or network system, that it is a full configuration of the data center fabric and you can have an intent base. You declare your intent, the fabric services system does observation of the the operational state so you can see it and then you can do fabric operations so you can actually configure EVPNs, do your micro-segmentation, do your BGP, monitor your BGP relationships and all that sort of stuff. So the digital sandbox is perhaps the unique part about the fabric service system. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. That's correct. Yeah. So I guess the idea then is that uh, some kind of change is coming down the pipe and I can use the digital sandbox and fabric services system to find out what's going to happen if I push this change into production, but I can do it in this digital twin to look at the repercussions before it actually happens in production. Yeah, exactly. And if you think about kind of how you go about doing this today, there's kind of two models in which you can do these tests before pushing into production, right? The first model is kind of a, well, an actual model uh, representation. So an ideal representation of what the network may look like if these, these configurations were applied as expected. And then you make a change and you see what could potentially be the outcome. But again, based on an ideal representation of what the network may look like if everything was working 100% as expected. And you can make some small tweaks to that, but again, you're working on a, on a model representation, not on the actual uh, uh, network itself. Mm-hmm. The second model is kind of the extreme of that, right? The second way of testing in, in your changes is that you're actually pushing this into your real network, but you're doing a potential you know, commit rollback where basically if the boxes were to not accept the configuration or there was something to go wrong in the transaction, then they would automatically roll back and come back into a configuration which was in a good state, right? And so those are your kind of two extremes in, in doing your testing. What we're providing with Digital Sandbox is kind of that middle piece where we're actually able to do testing against a simulated representation with the real state coming from the real network, but in a digital sandbox. So you're not actually making changes to your real network and expecting it to recover itself. You're actually making a change into the digital twin. You're validating that against the current state of the network. So if you had any uh, you know, ports that were operationally down, again, if you had some BGP neighbors which were down, which maybe not have been, but actually are in the network today, then any change you make you want to try and see what the outcome would be against that represented state, right? But I would also be able to do show IP route and see all the BGP routes that were in the table before I actually made a change and then compare it after the change sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Exactly. Whereas a lot of these intent-based systems just say, oh, this is my existing configuration. This will take me to my desired state, pushes the configuration. In, you know, and it sort of checks that the pre the configuration before it makes a change is actually what it's running internally. They're they're almost like text sponges. They're not, but you know, their models are not as complete. Because I think of the digital sandbox as like a, a a much more comprehensive next generation model of the network that the intent based system's working on. Exactly, that's correct. Yep. Yeah, it feels like we're sort of a long way from that configuration management database, which was, you know, sort of your best guess of where things are. You're actually, you're not talking about something that folks have to manually keep updated, this digital twin. It's actually pulling state information regularly from your production network to make sure you're as close to ground truth as possible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, correct. So can we do anything besides config pushes with a digital sandbox? Are there other things we can use it for? 
Yeah, absolutely. So of course, you know, when we think of CIC pipelines, typically configuration changes is kind of the low hanging fruit. It's kind of yeah. where most of the things are happening. Right. And of course, you know, the amount of changes you're making, you know, the whole continuous part of continuous integration, you know, depends on everybody's network is slightly different. The amount of changes you make is slightly different. But generally speaking, when you talk about CICD, <clears throat> a lot of it has to do with, you know, pushing a configuration change to the network. There are additional uses for CICD. You know, one may be more operational side. Uh, you know, you could think of it, for instance, as upgrading software across your network. You may want to validate the software upgrade in a digital twin on digital sandbox uh, and run a set of, you know, targeted tests against that. You may additionally, as part of your, you know, software upgrade pipeline, potentially push this a set of canaries in your actual real network. And then again, validate uh, some sort of test there. Additionally, when you do something like that's operational, what you're actually looking for is kind of the resulted state changes in the real network. So um, what Fabric Services System brings to the table is, of course, the framework and the uh, ability to expose a digital twin against which you can make these operational changes like a software upgrade and, and mitigate the risk and make push net to production. But additionally, once you do put, you are confident and you do push this to production, Fabric Services System is able to collect that streaming telemetry, observability data, and actually do validation against the change to make sure that the desired state in the real network is also represented as what you're expected from the system. Okay, and that's part of this continuous loop model of an intent-based system in that once a change goes through, I then go back and check to see what the results of that change were to make sure I'm still meeting my overall high-level intent goals. Yeah, of course. Part of intent, of course, is being declarative and trying to get the system to desired state. So that is, of course, a number one you know, the primary goal of an intent-based system like Fabric Services System is to make sure that the, the resultant state is correct. But, you know, you can go a step beyond that and actually look at, you know, performance metrics and, and you could tie that into the desired state to make sure that what's in the network is, is correct. And I think that's interesting, that, that use case about software updates, because that is kind of a sticking point. That's the reason why folks often leave, uh, uh, you know, potential security vulnerabilities in their software, because they don't know what's going to happen when they roll out a patch or roll out a new software version, what kind of results or effects it's going to have on the rest of the data center. Yeah, exactly. And you can also take this one step further when you get talking about CIC pipelines and potentially talk about remediation pipelines, right? So when you talk about something actually happening in a network, which shouldn't happen. Something actually did go wrong. Hmm. And, and, and the intent-based system like Fabric Services System is not able to uh, you know, resolve the, the issue. It's not able to get the system into the desired state. In that case, you may want to trigger something like a remediation pipeline. And a, re a remediation pipeline could be something as simple as saying, okay, well, this node here, I've, I've, you know, I've validated my changes, my digital sandbox. I've pushed my changes to production, but actually this particular node is having potentially a, a hardware issue, right? Something you couldn't have represented a digital sandbox as an ASIC issue, it's an SFP issue, something, something's gone wrong in, in the hardware, but now I want to do something. So, you know, the typical model here is that you would alert some sort of knock and someone would, you know, look into the problem um, and try and solve the issue, right? What you could do with the remediation pipeline is actually have the system that detect an anomaly, right? So the state is not achieved, there's something wrong with the issue with the network. And you can actually trigger a remediation pipeline where it could be as simple as saying, okay, well, if, if this happens, if you detect a problem with a given node, drain the traffic. So, you know, was it push some BGP policies to drain the traffic from the node and potentially reroute your traffic all around it and then alert to knock to make sure that they're, they can take a look into the issue, right? Mm -hmm. So very simple, but it doesn't leave a node in a, you know, transient state, which is maybe not expected. Maybe it's dropping some packets, but not all. It's actually an ability for you to detect that you're not at the desired state and then have a process and a pipeline in place to potentially divert traffic, run additional tests on the network. Once you've diverted traffic, maybe you want to do that in a digital sandbox quickly before you push that to production, right? So you want to divert traffic around a node, but what does that actually look like in my digital yeah. sandbox before I actually push up to production? 
Right. So if I reboot a node, what happens to the traffic flows? Might be the simplistic version. Exactly. Where does it go? Does it go right. down this path like I think it might? Or does it actually go down? <laughs> does it suddenly head out to the internet, which is not what I want, you know, for example? Yeah, exactly. Uh, is that that would be one way. And the other way would be to say if I added this route to drain traffic or if I undertook this this operational step of configuration, would this actually drain the traffic the way that I thought? Now, the business value of that is that operations can do things and you don't have to. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Right? Because you can actually say, like, I can validate this and then tell operations just to push this change and you have a high level of confidence that it will do what it wants. And you can go back to the business and have a high level of confidence that changes inside of a network managed by a fabric services system is actually means you're going to go home at 5 o'clock and not get rung up out of hours when exactly. operations push you know. I'm big on That's five right. o'clock technology, really big on five o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're talking about, you know, folks building a NetOps or a pipeline kind of discipline, does fabric service system and digital sandbox tie into sort of existing workflows that folks might have? Like I'm thinking chat ops or, uh, you know, ticketings. I guess I'm wondering how does this work operationally in terms of the processes, the workflows folks already have in place? Yeah, so we have the the ability to tie into these systems. Additionally, we have the ability to tie into various CI/CD, you know, pipeline software. You can think of, you know, the GitLabs, the Jenkins of this world. Mm -hmm. um, the product currently does not ship with pipeline software, although that is something that we will be bundling as part of the, the fabric services system in the coming future. Uh, but today we have integrations with kind of the primary players uh, in the space such that you can easily, uh, you know, tie fabric service system into your existing tool set, which you're probably already using with your DevOps teams and bring the network under that fold um, and, and, and to, under the same tool set and tooling. And that's important because that's obviously the whole point of this whole DevOps model is it has to go across a variety of traditional IT silos. Yeah, of course. And, and you could tie this into existing pipelines, which you may be using pipelines to, de to deploy other infrastructure in your environment. And you're just bringing in now the networking piece as part of that. And you could you know, as you said, a pipeline could be a, a large pipeline where you're doing a lot of deployments of, say, a, a certain set of computes. And part of that is validating the network before you bring that compute online. So now you're really bringing the network as a first class citizen to the DevOps world and bringing the network and the validations and the true CI against a digital twin into your regular DevOps uh, methodologies and operations. All right. Well, we're coming up to the end of this episode, but you guys are going to be back with us again. Uh, and so, Erwin, if you want to kind of tease us with what we're going to be talking about for the next Tech Bytes with Nokia. Right. So on the next episode, we're looking to talk about uh, streaming telemetry. So, so far, we've talked about the digital twin. We've talked about uh, fabric services system and how it integrates into CICD pipelines and potentially bring in some observability uh, into the, into the uh, equation. And all this is really backed by a highly performing streaming telemetry system uh, that's built into SR Linux, our network operating system. So all the changes that we're extracting from the network into a, a digital twin data set is really using streaming telemetry. And so really the next episode is digging a bit deeper into what streaming telemetry is and how it enables a lot of the things that we've talked about in this episode and the previous one. Right. Okay. Streaming telemetry is going to be critical for that observability piece and building that uh, digital twin. So we'll, we'll get under the covers, I guess. Uh, in the meantime, if folks want to find out more about the digital twin, about uh, fabric services system, where should they go? They can go to nokia.ly slash data dash center dash fabric. All right. That's nokia.ly slash data dash center dash fabric. Erwin, thanks for joining us. And, and thanks to Nokia for being a sponsor. And thanks to you for being a listener. If you like this show, there are many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking, 
would never be enough.